glorified, I too shall be. Along with Peggy, I would add one more. David has so appreciated that. It was one year ago that our brother John went to glory. What a week. And I also echo his thoughts on just to see what went on in this place yesterday. You're right, David, that's family. A third of you, I'm looking out on a third of you that were here yesterday. Absolutely amazing. Glorified we too shall be, beloved. As we think about that expression, let's take our copy of God's word and let's turn now to Romans. Romans chapter 6. Blessing it has been to go through this study, Romans 6. We are at the end of chapter 6. So turn there, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Romans 6, 15 to the end of the chapter. Well, years ago, the nation of Israel was in Egypt. Under Pharaoh, God's people were enslaved to a ruthless ruler. The opening chapter of Exodus recounts that for us. Israel's cries for rescue from slavery came up to God as it's stated very directly in Exodus 2, verse 23. And in the very next verse of that second chapter, we're told that God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God, it says, the text says this, knew them. God heard and God was moving. He would begin thus his deliverance plan. See Exodus 3 with the one that would lead his people in that deliverance. Now for those unfamiliar with the account in Exodus or maybe informed by popular culture, you might think deliverance was being set free from slavery completely. You might think that Israel would be delivered to finally go and come as they like. One might imagine them throwing up their hands and saying, yay, no more work. And that, of course, would be wrong. God was not delivering them from slavery, as Exodus would go on to reveal. But God was delivering them from a wicked master. Slaves, listen, slaves, they would remain. Yes, their deliverance was a transfer. Listen to Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. Listen specifically, Exodus 7, 16. Let my people go so that they would be free? No. Let my people go so that purpose they may serve me in the wilderness. That is exchanging the lordship of Pharaoh for the lordship of Yahweh. That is deliverance from a wicked master to come under the righteous master. That is not freedom from making bricks, service, or taking orders. That is freedom to make, to serve, and to obey as they ought to under God. So it is for Israel, Westmount, and so it is for the church. Yes, Israel's deliverance is an important Old Testament picture and theological reality for us to start this morning as we're reminded of our study back in Romans, and specifically in chapter 6. A chapter, look at Romans 6, if you recall, that begins a new section in Romans. 
This is a new section from chapters 6 to 8. It's a next section that follows after the previous one that ended in chapter 5, if you recall with me, where Paul detailed extensively our new position, our new representation, our new headship. A transfer, do you remember that? Transfer from Adam and the humanity of sin to Christ and the humanity of life. Christ, now our head, by way of righteousness and life, no longer are we, praise God, under Adam, under sin, no longer are we slaves to sin. No, what's the reality, the positional reality? Our master has changed. Yes, church, under the headship and lordship of Christ, one's position and status changes. One moves from death to life. One moves from guilty to not guilty. One is free. Now, as we return to our study here in chapter 6, we consider the literary transition. Paul's point here in the letter at this point, from chapter 5, transitioning to chapter 6, is this. That such a positional change, right, a master change, has implications, Our new position under Christ must, it must do that, like it would with any lordship transfer. Which is taught extensively, by the way, flowing out of justification, as we'll see. But remember, justification, the right standing before God, which Paul has taken great pains to show us in this letter, which we've covered. Justification, the positional reality for us, Christian, is wonderful and we need it not only here and there on the end before the Lord, but it is the beginning here of sanctification, the process of being set apart. That's what sanctification means. And sanctification is the doctrine that Paul turns to now flowing out of chapter 6. Sanctification, a word again, it means the process of being set apart, the process of being made holy. Sanctification, the Bible doctrine, again, that is motion, our growing in Christ's likeness. That's what's in view here in these chapters. And you might rightly say, especially if you're new in the faith, what does that mean? I thought I was saved, and that's good. What does that mean? What does that look like, this sanctification? What do you mean there's things that still need to happen? What should that look like? Good questions. Well, those questions and others around our new position under grace are addressed now in the next few chapters. That new position under grace is, of course, where we left off last time. Look at it in verse 14. Paul ended last time, remember, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. That is the transfer said another way. You see all the synonymous ways Paul is referring to. To this Adam to Christ, new master now is no longer sin but grace. And with that, Paul continues. Let's look and let's just pick this up and read the verses we're going to study this morning. Verse 15 What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death. Or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we take those words, we recognize the weight of them, and we recognize, Father, we need to understand them when we think about who we submit to as Lord. And Father, we pray you'd help us to do that today. Open our eyes and our minds, let us receive, and let us, Father, live out as you might allow us to your glory, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I trust, even as you consider those passages as a whole again, and maybe just look at them that way, I trust the theme or the motif Paul uses in this passage stood out as we previewed it. I pray so. It's stated both directly, eight times in fact, and indirectly. And of course the theme, the vehicle he's using is slavery. Paul does not look for another word, which is interesting here. Although some translators do, and they want to give you another word there. Paul gives you the word, doulos. Paul is not interested in the fact that we may bristle at the word, especially in that culture. He just gives the word. He says, Christian, you're not just freed from being under sin or a slave to sin. Christian, you are now thus, Paul says, under grace. And what does under grace mean? It means you're a slave to righteousness, verse 19. Yes, believer. Yes, says the text. Yes, it's true. You remain a slave. Marching orders, of course, are different, and we're going to get to that. But you are a slave. Slavery, of course, is not a popular word and a word with very bad associations. And to be clear, to begin this morning, we should be indignant at those associations and indignant of that history. I I know in a group like this, this goes without saying. The colonial slavery of the New World, the Americas of the 18th and 19th centuries, we would be aghast at the treatment of those slaves, as we should be. That's beyond dispute. Slavery was wicked, plain and simple. But think with me as we get into this text, it was wicked. Why? Predominantly, why was that wicked slavery? Because the masters were wicked. Their treatment of slaves was wicked. Again, I know it hardly needs to be said as we begin. Listen, human beings are wicked masters. We can agree on that. Human beings are wicked masters. Now, the fact that we are wicked lords does not mean that all lordship is wicked. Let's not commit that fallacy. Yes, sin is an evil master, but not the only master. I would submit to you this morning, what of a benevolent master? What of a master that actually freed you up, slave, freed you up, beloved, to live and do and serve as you ought to? What of a master like that? Well, such is God. And Christian, if you are saved, you are a slave of God. He is your master, and you obey him. That slavery church is really and truly good. 
Let's now consider why. Let's take a closer look at slavery in our first point, and it's this, the economy of slavery. The economy of slavery. Back to verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. That verse echoes the chapter's opening verse. Maybe you're thinking, that sounds familiar. Well, it is. It's a similar rhetorical question Paul employs here. Back to open chapter 6, verse 1, Paul was heading off the protests flowing out of chapter 5 that might have said, well, Paul, if grace increases where sin increases, why not sin more? Grace abounds. That is all good. You have individuals, of course, like Rasputin and others in history that just proclaim that. Let's just sin all the more. Let's just sin all the more. Because it's good for God and good for grace to abound. That perversion of grace we looked at in Paul's response, by no means. He's aghast at the suggestion. Well, again here, Paul tackles another potential abuse of grace. It's the protest similarly that would say, well, if we're under grace, let me get this right. If we're under grace, does it matter? If we're under grace, then why am I fretting about my sin? Grace covers it, right? Like, I understand that. Like, why am I fretting? Maybe I just need to relax. Again, such is indeed the common protest in so many corners of the professing church today. Such is the cheap grace, the abused grace of so many. It's so prevalent, we're no longer even surprised to hear it, are we? Once again, and note that over and over again, Paul is going to come back to this convention because he's aghast of that fleshly implication. Paul says to the sin excuse that claims sin is okay because we're under grace, to that Paul cries out, look at verse 15, by no means. Meganoito in the Greek, the strongest refutation possible. He employs a convention to say absolutely not. No way. It is not only a revealing thought, listen, about your spiritual condition if you think it, by the way. But it is illogical and inconsistent with your position in Christ. Look at verse 16. And this is what Paul is doing. If this is your protest, if this is what you're thinking, read verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey? Listen, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In other words, Paul says to do that... Sin, because you're under grace, is akin to, is in line with, is in concert with presenting yourself to the lordship of sin. Here again, the word of God shows us it's not about our profession. It's about our practice. It matters not, Paul says, see the word, if you claim to be under grace. If you keep sinning, if you keep presenting yourself in obedience to sin, if you keep practicing it, then it only reveals, look at verse 16, you're slaves to the one whom you obey. It's plain as day. Beloved, that is the economy of slavery, by the way. You obey whom you serve, right? You obey whom you serve. This is common sense. Obedience is the economy of slavery. So to measure your slave measure or slave master, you look at your obedience. And who are you obeying? Listen, obedience reveals your master. 
because we're all obeying a master. Westmount, your actions reveal your allegiance. There is no way around it. And here God's word teaches us that we all obey and we all know obedience. We all present ourselves as obedient slaves to something. And the question, beloved, is what? And what we must note here is that this is not open-ended for Paul. Beloved, we can't go to this text and walk away with an open-ended feel from Paul because he doesn't. He doesn't suggest that there's a different master for everyone. Choose your own master. There's not a master of many colors. So yet none of that that might be suggested today is in this text. No, the Bible says your slavery, look at it, is either of sin or of righteousness. There's no third option. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. No third option. That's it. No in-between. No partial obedience to this one and more to that one. No obeying that comes and goes. No, the text, look at it with me, friends, says nothing like that, does it? So we cancel out those voices and we look at the text. What does the text say? And by the way, this is not just a text in the New Testament. This is how it's always been. Remember Israel, upon entry into Canaan, remember that, book of Joshua. Joshua declared in Joshua 24, 15, choose this day whom you will serve. And you remember Joshua lays out a whole palette of masters. No, of course he doesn't do that. He says this, the options, A, the gods of the Canaanites, or B, the Lord. There is no C. Choose today who you will serve, A or B. Later, also declaring only two options, our Savior teaches that you do not obey both. Matthew 6, 24, note it. No one can serve what? Two masters. He doesn't say no one can serve three or four. No one can serve two masters. And he goes on to explain why. And if we're rendered with two, imagine the impossibility of three. Westmount, the economy of slavery is obedience to the one whom you obey. That is submission under one Lord. That's obedience to one master. We said it before, as Paul did to open the chapter, and it's called for again, to be under grace does not mean we're free from obedience. That's going to rock people's world, isn't it? Because at heart, we're rebels, aren't we? And we don't want to obey with our fallenness. But to be under grace doesn't mean we're free from obedience. It just means our obedience changes. Listen, we all obey. Listen, look around. Even the fiercest rebel obeys something. As such, our obedience only reveals, it only demonstrates who our master is, either sin or righteousness. We obey one or the other. That's life's display, and such is the economy of slavery. That's one. Next, two, let's talk about the transfer of slavery. The transfer of slavery. Look at verse 17. Let's continue. But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you're committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul says, back to 17, but thanks be to God. Stop there. It's a pause in light of the reality of new ownership. Do you see that? The apostle says to Roman Christians, to all Christians reading God's word, but thanks be to God. In other words, thank God you've received a transfer of slavery. 
You were once slaves of sin, but now you've become slaves of righteousness. Praise God. And one cannot miss the seeming paradox there. Look at it again in verse 18. See it. Christian, you've been set free to become what? Another slave. Do you see that? I'll repeat it. You've been set free to become another slave. And again, note, and we have to emphasize this in the day and age we're in, and the church that's in that day and age. Again, note, you've not been set free, Christian, to yourself or fully. No self-liberation or freedom from everything. There's no third master possibility. I, I think we all agree the text is pretty clear. No, the Bible teaches nothing of the sort. This is always a binary transfer from one master to the only other master, from sin to righteousness. Now, before we move too quickly on this point, let's make a few observations on these verses. Look with me. Notice in verse 17. The verse says that those whose slavery has been transferred to righteousness, look at the the expression here, have become obedient from the heart. Such language reminds of the opening of the letter. Remember chapter 1, verse 5, Paul talked about the obedience of faith. And here, working synonymously between faith and the heart, faith is this internal peace that God births in us to work out and exercise and Here we see, again, a pointer to the inside, to the heart. That Christian obedience is of faith. It's not of sight. And faith is internal. It's not what the external eyes can see. This is not obedience to senses. It's an awful thing to be enslaved to our senses when we obey based on them, right? This is the obedience of faith. Yet even more, this obedience is now, look at it, and here's the expression Paul uses, chapter 6, from the heart. It is from the inside out, obedience from the inside out. Turning further back in our Bibles, we're reminded of Jeremiah 31, 33. The new covenant realities communicated first to Israel of the law written where? A time was coming when the law would be written where? On their heart. And of course, the early bird preview of that, of course, of the Gentiles now. You and I, Gentiles, grafted in and sharing in the foretaste of nourishment that is coming one day for Israel fully. We get a glimpse. We get a foretaste grafted in. What will be true for them then is true for us now, and it's this. Look at the text. Obedience from the heart. That really is the problem, right? And that's why those texts and the prophets are so clear. That was the problem with Israel. They weren't obedient from the heart. Secondly, Notice in verse 17, the synonym Paul uses for righteousness. He calls it, look at it, longer expression, the standard of teaching to which you were committed. It's a reminder here that our new master is not leading by undefined terms. Our new master is not just a God of love, now go and love. But what does that mean? But just go and do it. The lordship of righteousness through grace and Christ, listen, is service by a standard. It's not Jesus is my Lord and he kind of just lets me alone and I really enjoy life because he kind of leaves me alone. No, it's Jesus is my Lord, which means I conform to his standard of teaching. I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 1, 13. Paul to Timothy says, listen to these words, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
He'll go on to tell him in that final letter from Paul to guard the deposit, to keep the faith. Don't just be strong, period. This is how you're strong because you follow the pattern of the sound words. Third, look at the end of verse 17 and into verse 18. Each verb toward the end of verse 17 into 18, each one is passive. We've talked a lot about active and passive and the verbs. So this is passive, and that's grammatically very, very important. Look, you were committed. Do you see that? Passive. You've been set free. Passive. You've become slaves of righteousness. Passive. The construction of each of those phrases reminds us that this transfer, listen, why is this important, is all God. It's all God. We receive it. This transfer is his. The slave transfers all his doing. It's all God. Theologically and grammatically, he gave us hearts that want to obey him. He moved us out of sin obedience. His work, his transfer, his glory. That's the transfer of slavery that comes with being a slave of God. Third point is the presentation of slavery. Let's move to verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Paul says, I am speaking, look at it, beginning of verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Or more to the original, because of the weakness of your flesh. We could say it that way. In other words, that is the state of your flesh. It is fallen. And listen, here's the point. It's not above slavery. You may recoil at the thought, but it is reality. Your flesh is in subjection by its very nature. And that reality, Paul goes on to say, is that you present your flesh then in some way. Your flesh is dependent, we could say. Your flesh is submissive, and that's the point. It will do that. Such is the presentation of slavery. You're presenting always to a master. Where sin is your master, or as it once was, believer, you present your members. Where sin is your master, you present your members to sin. You present your members, your body, your flesh, obedient to impurity, the verse says. Now, that's one thing. But as we learned in Romans 1, do you remember, when you do that, it's a progressive process. Remember that? You are given over more and more to such service. The sovereign God gives you over, right? As you give yourself over. Hence, the middle of verse 19 says this. Note the progression lawlessness thus leads to what? More lawlessness. That makes sense. We know how this works. You know how this presentation works, beloved. This is one presented sin before you in thought. Someone lays it before you and tempts you. Maybe it's a set of circumstances. It's a presented sin. And you know it's wrong. And you're wrestling with it. You're looking at that fruit. You're analyzing it every way. That an insidious step where it turns into, well, let me count the cost. If I do it, how much trouble will I get into? Will I really get caught? And then that moment where you cross the threshold and you sin. And you're wrought up with anxiety. And of course, you can't sleep. And you might tell a brother. And it was awful. 
And then in a week, what happens? The fruit's there again. And it's a little easier that time, isn't it? It's just a little more easy. You get a bit more sleep at night, and you actually have one or two more excuses. And then you do it again. And then you do it again, and then it comes to a point where you're just unconsciously doing it. Because lawlessness gives way to lawlessness. Sin gives way to more sin. Indeed, lawlessness begets lawlessness. And that's a hopeless presentation, isn't it? For sinners, it's hopeless. But it is not the only presentation here, beloved. Praise God. Paul says, Christian, just as that was the case once for you, so now, look at me in verse 19, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. See that? Leading to sanctification. That too is a progressive process. Just like lawlessness leads to lawlessness, we have a progressive sanctification under righteousness. And now that progress is in the right direction. That movement is upward. That is an upward cycle of righteousness. Listen, whether sin or righteousness, in both cases, a process is underway. And beloved, when you have a new master, listen to me, you no longer have old excuses. When you have a new master, you no longer have old excuses. You can, capital C, You can present your members as instruments of righteousness. Yes, you can. You can choose righteousness over sin. Yes, you can. Every time. And if you say you can't, friend, then you make God a liar. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Under new ownership, believer... For the first time, as Augustine helpfully articulated, you are now able not to sin. You're now able to choose not to sin, to present rightly, and that is the point here, as Paul says to the church. You're finally, Christian, delivered from sin, and you are now finally free to choose righteousness. Before, with sin as your master, that was true one-dimensional bondage. When sin is your master, there is no choice. You had no choice. You presented sin and obeyed sin every time. Listen, maybe it was polished or hidden or tidied up for presentation, but it was there. And to be clear, this is not just a one point of sin. This is ongoing presentation, says Jesus. Noted, John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is what? A slave to sin. Everyone. This is active, says Jesus. The presentation of slavery always is, beloved, always active. Understand this. Righteousness is not some passive association with God. That's not what righteousness is. I'm a Christian. Don't look at my life. Just listen to what I just said. I'm a Christian. It's not some passive association. We float in and out of the Bible and church and Christianity. No, righteousness actively presents before God, ongoing, progressively, sanctifying all the time a life, every corner and recess that is obedient to God. I said this before in the study. There's not a crevice in your vessel that's not under the lordship of Christ. If you're a Christian, see it. Look at verse 19. Presenting your members, that's ongoing, 
as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. One last point here. The fruit of slavery. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Paul says, look at it, while enslaved to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, that may be a curious expression, right? You say, what does that mean to be free to righteousness? Well, it might be helpful to consider it the other way. To be a slave to God means we're free in regard to what? Sin, right? To be a slave to God means we're free to sin. It doesn't mean we're free to do sin. We're free from it. We're free from its power and effects. Again, that's really a way of saying we're free from its power and hold on us. We're free from sin's power. That's the point. And we get that. And as hard as it is to fathom, the same is true of righteousness when under sin. It's true. When you're a slave to sin, right, righteousness has no power over you. It's true. It's free from us when we're slave to sin. Of course, in our slavery to sin, we think of, we have some power to do what is right. Many people are under this delusion, aren't they? That they have some power to do what is right. But the reality is, theologically, anthropologically, says the word, we don't. Enslaved to sin means we have no choice. That's the point in why Paul is using this picture. Enslaved to sin means we're in bondage and unable to grab hold of freedom and righteousness. That is exactly Paul's point in verse 20. Under sin, listen, say it this way. We are alive to sin and dead to righteousness. That's what it means to be under sin and to be free from righteousness. To prove the point then, Paul will give us verse 21. Look at it. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Construction here, I love. It's, it's almost Paul continuing, and of course under the Holy Spirit, right, with these inspired words, the, the Spirit knows how we're wrestling through this. It's almost to say, well, wait a minute, what about, what about a practice? What would then that look like? Well, here it is. What Fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Because we all want to measure our fruit as an unbeliever, don't we? Well, you know, I, mean, I think I did some good things. I, and what about X and Y? Didn't they, they're doing good things. Another obvious question from Paul, look at it, is this, as we think that through. What fruit, truly? Let, Paul says, what fruit? What's the evidence? What were you gaining at this time? What were you getting at this time? What fruit comes from a slavery to sin? It's almost like Paul says, okay, let's study that. Let's examine the fruit. And the answer is so obvious, more than nothing, Paul has to remind the reader, the answer is death. That's the fruit you get from sin every time, death. Interesting to note here that as a Christian, we look back on our sin slavery and we are what? Now, let's not miss this in verse 21. It says this, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now what? Ashamed. That's what the Bible says. We are now ashamed. Here's another buzzword. Let's talk about it biblically. Because the word is saying that the Christian would be. Of course, beloved, and I pray for many of you this is true. You know this doesn't mean we feel condemnation or guilt, right? That's not what the verse is saying. 
In fact, we're going to have more to say on that in Romans 8. Paul will. This is not about feeling condemnation or heaping more guilt on yourself. Absolutely not. But we are ashamed. We are, as we're learning, believer, justified by faith in Christ. So we have a new position in Christ that is not of condemnation or guilt. We are declared not guilty. Praise God. But we are ashamed as we consider the fruits of obedience to our old master. And to be ashamed, as we learned in chapter 1, we take everything with us. As we learned in chapter 1, to be ashamed means it's nothing to boast about. Nothing to boast about that fruit. We are ashamed of our sin fruit, verse 20, but not ashamed of the gospel, chapter 1, because gloriously it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. Yes, to everyone, even once wicked sinners, Christian, producing wicked fruit like you and me, who were once that but no longer are enslaved to sin because God transferred us and enabled us to believe. Yes, now we believe, and now we've been set free from sin and are a slave to God. Brothers and sisters, can I tell you, because the text begs it, in light of the plain truth, look at verse 20 in this verse, that maybe if you do not feel ashamed of the things you did enslaved to sin, then maybe you need to check your ownership. This is not condemnation before you run away and say, Jason said that. This is not guilt before you think that's what I'm saying. Listen, not guilty. And we're going to sing about it soon. In Christ. But we are ashamed of the fruit we produced when we were slaves to sin. And again, we want to be clear of our new position in Christ. The Christian is delivered from that. This is a right understanding now as you are regenerate of where sin leads. This is the glory. This is the glory. And that is set against where your fruit leads now. Look at verse 22. Of course, the Bible never leaves us there. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Wow. And now church is slaves to God, slaves of God. Our fruit does not lead to death. But our fruit leads to life. And note one more time the process of life in the verse. Look at it. Sanctification onto life. Let me say it this way. The fruit of a slavery to God is fruit that leads to our progressively being set apart for God and living for God, which eventually, at the capstone, in one sense, of our salvation, ends in life forever with God. Blessed journey. The final verse of this chapter states it famously and pointedly, and you know it. Look at it. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at it with me. The wages of sin. The earned fruit in that slavery is what? Death. No conditions. But the free gift of God... FOF class, you know this, the unearned charisma from above, the free gift, the charisma from above is eternal life. There are your final eschatological ultimate fruits of each slavery. Listen, eternal death 
when we are slaves of sin and eternal life when we are slaves of God. It cannot be clearer, can it? So Westmount, we are all a slave. Each one of us a slave to whom we obey. And God's word, as we've learned this morning, tells us that we obey only one of two masters because there are only two masters. Sin or God. Right now, each one of you is obeying one of those masters. It's true. Freedom, contrary to all things of the past few years, freedom is not the position of no slavery. Freedom is a matter of the right slavery. Can we get that? Freedom, true freedom, is the right master, the good one, the right one, the benevolent one. A slave to sin, if that is you, cannot practice righteousness. You're trying, maybe. Maybe you're trying. And there's something tugging at you. You're hearing these words and there's something bothering you. You're trying really hard. But maybe you're under conviction and recognize, I can't do that. Because anytime I do good, I want to serve myself. We cannot practice righteousness. That's because of your master. And it means sin is your life. A slave of God, if that is you, beloved, will not practice sin. The observer will not look at your life and say, yeah, there's ongoing practicing sin. No, no, that's not you. Why? Because Christ is your life. Christ is your life. Here, for every day, progressively, and listen to me there. When we too will be glorified. So in light of the end of Romans 6, I simply present what the text is presenting before you. Which is it for you? Friends, who is your master? I don't want you to leave this place without answering that question to yourself. Who is your master? When you walk out the door and you've done church, What manual are you following? Who are you submitting to? Who are you reporting to? And where is the fruit of that? Who is your Lord? Who is your Lord? Is it sin? Is that your life? Or is Christ and Christ alone your life? Father in heaven, Lord, we come with those words from your word and we beg and pray You would have us all do right heart examination before you. Lord, may, as we do that, we never lose the luster and the glory of you coming down, breaking us free from the slavery to sin and placing us under your lordship. Oh God, what a life that is. What a life to be found all in Christ. God, I pray that you would help each one of us in our soul state to consider the words this morning from you. And we pray that we would walk out looking more and more like Christ for those that love you and call you Lord. Amen.